Well, good morning again. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We won't read it just yet. I want to remind you what we're doing in this series on life together. We're in the middle of a series, as it were, Life Together. I'm calling this Life Together, the Gospel. This is part four. There are, I believe, four more weeks on this theme. And you might ask, why the Gospel now? Why are we addressing the Gospel now? That seems more fundamental than uh, number four in a series. But the order doesn't matter a whole lot. All of these ideas are the subjects that we're addressing in this Life Together series are of utmost central significance. Of course, the gospel is at the center of it all. It's the hub of that wheel where all the spokes lead out from it. But each of the things that we've addressed, love of God, love of brother and sister, and how those are both manifest in the Lord's Supper, those are central. And now we're just focusing on the bare gospel, if you will. So, What we're asking now, more narrowly than just the good news itself, more narrowly than just the gospel, is the good news of the vindication of God in saving all who believe in Jesus. The good news of the vindication of God in saving all who believe in Jesus. That is a very central idea and it alters the identity of our community if we hold fast to that truth. So, I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 20 here in a little bit. Um, But I want to start by telling you my plan of approach to this text. Uh, This is a big text. This is a chapter that would merit many, many sermons, even verses... Uh, 26 um, alone uh, could merit multiple sermons on its own. We're going to be focusing on verses 21 through 26 primarily. But I want to tell you my plan of approach and how to make it fit with this series of life together. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy of family stories. And central to my use of this analogy is the idea that the church those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, are in fact a family. God is our Father, Christ our eldest brother. All of us who trust in Him are brothers and sisters. And every family has these family-defining stories. Rarely ever do they get written down, but they are important nonetheless. So I grew up in a large family. I'm one of eight And we had a larger extended family. So when my older brothers or older cousins started dating and getting engaged and getting married, uh, it was a custom. It was was fascinating that this, this would begin. We would need to tell these new additions, these new prospective additions, our core family stories. No one set out with a plan to do this, but as a new person got added to the list, as it were, we would just start in this habit of making sure everyone knew our family stories. 
So for us originals of the family, we not only lived the stories out, but we got to hear them over and over again. We told them perhaps dozens of times, and they were told by many different people, and show our shared history, the shared history of our family, not only gets passed down to the next generation, but we are each then in that process reminded of our shared history. When we come to a text like Romans 3, particularly verses one, uh, 21 through 26, um, you've probably read or heard it or have even heard sermons on it dozens of times. And there's a danger that exists when you approach a text like this to say something like, I've heard all this before. There is a pressure on preachers to be fresh or original. And that gets many preachers into trouble. But using this analogy of family stories applies in at least three ways. Some stories are fundamental or foundational to family identity. There are some things that have happened in your family that if a newcomer wishes to understand your family, they need to know that story, like my dad's cancer or Beth's brother's car accident. You really can't know really what what that family is about unless you know those stories. It's not all bad. Those are just the easiest examples I can think of. Secondly, some stories need to be retold over and over as new members of the family Come in so that they can hear it, so that these new members of the family can know it well enough so that they can tell it. And number three, this is the one that especially relates to our message today, there are so many different things to say about some of these stories, um, different facets. Some stories are so rich and multifaceted that it's not repetition to tell them over and over again because... What we all try to do when we do that is to give some new perspective or some new take or some previously forgotten or previously unexplained angle. And that is the case with this text today. The gospel represents, this is the connection of this analogy, the gospel represents the most important shared family story we have. And sometimes we assume that everyone who comes to a church like this is familiar enough with the story of the gospel. And maybe you could articulate it if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? You could maybe give an answer. But what I want to do with this text today is to expose it in a way maybe that you haven't thought of before. And there are people in this room who are new to the family or who are on the path of becoming part of this family that need to hear the gospel in these ways that maybe you've heard before. Those of us who are older in the faith need to be reminded and brought to higher vantage points. You know, when I was at seminary and a preacher announced, we, we had chapel three times a week, and so you, get, you got to hear uh, lots of sermons each week. When they would announce that they were going to just preach on the gospel, I used to get bored. And part of the problem with that is the boring ways that the gospel is often related to people. Our culture has an infatuation with the nutshell and in short and summary way of looking at things. And that's all, if that's all you ever hear, a summary version of the gospel, a truncated version of the gospel, or maybe even a systematic presentation of the steps of the gospel, you know what you'll miss out on? 
glory, depth, magnitude. So it should not surprise you that I'm not a fan of the truncated nutshell or summary approach to things, especially not when it comes to our God, who He is and what He's done. So it is my plan not to tell you something new and exciting, but maybe to hold up the diamond of the gospel, as it were, to you and show you a few facets that maybe you haven't thought about. Maybe that you've seen before but have forgotten. So, I want to lay out before you a question before we get to the text. I know this is unusual. We usually read the text first, but I want to give you a question before we wade through verses 1 through 20. Why is it those who have faith that God justifies? Asking it another way. Why does God give the gift of righteousness only to those who have faith in Jesus? Hopefully you know that that's the case. If you've grown up at all in church, if you've heard the Gospel explained to you, you know that that is the heartbeat or the core of the Gospel. That God Himself grants or gives the gift of righteousness to those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Those who have faith in Him. And... That is the heartbeat of the Gospel. If you have never heard that message before, if you've heard it just clearly, just now as I've explained it to you, that gift of righteousness can be yours right now through trust in the Lord Jesus. This is the truth that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith. That truth, that hope was lost for around a thousand years and recovered. So we are grateful All of the promises of God then, founded on His righteousness being given to you, can be yours right now if you would but trust or place your faith in the Lord Jesus. But why? Why is it faith? Could it have been something else? Could God have chosen to justify those who had some other spiritual virtue? Maybe love? We're told that love is even more foundational than faith or hope. Could God have chosen to justify those who had some particular bit of doctrine correct in their minds? If not, why not? Did it have to be faith? Some balk at even asking a question like this or offer simplistic and sometimes silly answers to a question like this. I hope you understand this pattern of asking this type of question has been a habit of mine for a long time. And I've had people say things like, well, you're here trying to answer all these unanswerable questions. People are out there dying and going to hell. I've heard it all. But in asking questions like this, we are introduced to more assurance, more understanding, more appreciation of what it is God has done and why He has done it this way. So, store that question in your minds. Why does it have to be faith? I hope to show the answer to this question. In doing so, I think we'll become much more familiar with this foundational family story. So why ask the question? Not to put too fine a point on it, but in coming to understand the why behind faith, 
we will be introduced to greater assurance, greater confidence, and more understanding of who God really is and what He is up to. If we don't answer a question like that or just shrug and say, well, it's just the way He set it up. Don't ask those kinds of questions. Just be thankful for having received the gift. And number one, when your mind digs down to the very basic level, which I think is at least part of what it means to worship the Lord your God with all your mind, then faith will seem arbitrary. Number two, if you don't answer questions like this, we will neglect the very epicenter of our assurance. If we don't know why it has to be faith, then your confidence in God saving you through faith will weaken. Number three, boredom with the fundamentals will linger and increase. And this is a major problem. We get so excited and enthused about so many other things. We're, we're like the Athenians, always wanting to read or think about something new. And the gospel is over here as assumed, mundane, simple, not exciting. And number four, shared zeal for the fundamentals is how we pursue peace and unity in our family, us as a church. So, I'm going to read verses 1 through 20 rather quickly as we set up. We won't exposit them fully, but I want to read them in order to set up verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying that condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
as discouraging and as awful uh, this list of indictments can be, it is actually filled with encouragements in a few ways. The first encouragement is that we are equal under sin. It is the good news of equality under sin. The context shows that his main point is to remove any distinction between Jew and Greek when it comes to our standing before God. Because of sin and the justice of God and the corruption that sin brings, there's really no higher standing by being a descendant of Abraham. It is even the case that because the descendants of Abraham were given such a head start, if you will, that their opposition to the Lord is even worse and worthy of more condemnation. This is good news because, or since, not if, since this, this list that I just read is true of every person, then there's no sliding scale of difficulty when it comes to saving a person. No one, no matter how bad your sin has been, or how barely you even understand the offense of your sin. You can't write a more condemning paragraph than this. And this is true of all of us. It is true that some sins are more grievous, some sins are more grave than others, and consequences of sins are worse in this life versus others. But we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This means that this description is not so much a list of the things that we do, it is a list of the things that we are by nature. And there is no distinction. In Adam, all sin, all can, are condemned, and all die. The second bit of encouragement is this. It's the good news of brutal honesty. The world is far too disnified. You have to say it with a deep southern accent. It is far too disnified. Luke Skywalker believed that Darth Vader was worth saving, worth another chance, because, quote, there's still some good in him. Is that why God moved in his love and mercy to save us? Did He send His Son because we were worth saving? Or because there was still some good in us? Not if you believe these verses. No. He saw what we were. God, having the most brutally honest and clear vision of us, seeing nothing good in us, and seeing nothing that would make us worth saving, still sent His Son to save us. Someone might object. Well, we're made in God's image, right? Isn't that, isn't that worth something? That actually makes matters worse. When a lion kills another lion, it doesn't have to be killed. Because that's not murder. It's not an offense to the image of God. When a person made in God's image sins, it actually takes you to the negative. Because you have perverted the gift of being made in God's image and knowing God in a way that none of the other creatures can. So God saw all of this. And this is true of all of us. And yet He still saves. It's brutally honest. 
And yet the good news is still there. There's also the good news of sin being the problem. The problem is not that you lack proper education. The problem is not that you have problems with your physical body. The problem is not that you lack self-esteem. The problem is not that someone has treated you poorly, though that might be the case. Your problem is not that you have been uh, robbed of opportunity. The problem is not that you came into a world that was ruled by the bourgeoisie and you are being oppressed by them. Your problem is not inequality. Your problem is not a lack of spiritual qualities or aptitudes or a better environment. Your problem is sin. Why is this good news? Because God sends His Son to save His people from their sins. Understand this, brothers and sisters, the more unlike sin and guilt and condemnation your problems become, the less and less the cross will be precious to you. You understand that? When the problems that you identify, the big problems in your life, the ones that take up the foreground are not sin and guilt and condemnation, then the cross will be less and less and less an emotional stability, a spiritual foundation for you. But the more you see and understand and really grasp the clarity of this dark description that your problem is sin, the more precious and awesome and joy-giving and soul-stabilizing the cross will be. Because Jesus comes to deal with sin. Once you yield to the Bible's definition of who you are and what your problem really is, the more encouragement there will be for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this in his book on spiritual depression. He says that Christians, by and large, the reason that we deal with sadness and sorrow in ways that we can't get over is because we really haven't been crushed enough by the weight of our sins. Because if we would allow ourselves to be brought low by the condemnation of our sin, then Christ is there to save us and lift us up. But we identify our problem as something so different very often. So that is the situation. That's, that, that's my summary. The situation is sin, guilt, and condemnation. So what is the solution? Verse 21, the solution is righteousness. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, as we try to gather encouragement from verses 1 through 20, if you think about it and read it right, it's still overall bad news. It's accurate reporting, but it's bad news. So we need the good news. And the good news is this, that God manifests His righteousness apart from the law. I want to say that this is not an intuitive answer. It's interesting to note that in this section, in this whole chapter, forgiveness of sins is not explicitly mentioned. It's implied but it's not presented as the solution. If we were writing this, or if we were reading this for the first time, what might we expect Paul to say? Problem? Sin. Solution? 
forgiveness. Problem, condemnation. Solution, expiation. Right? You could just play this the whole time. And, but to hear that the problem is sin and guilt and corruption, and being broken beyond all hope, and for Paul to say the solution is the manifestation of God's righteousness. That's surprising. And I know that if you've heard this passage preached before, or if you've memorized it, then it, we're, we're well familiar with the theology and thoughts here, but, but I don't want us to lose the sense of surprise. In saying this, Paul is signaling that the problem discussed in verses 1 through 20 is not just about us. This, verses 1 through 20, being the state of things for both Jews and Greeks under sin, actually, if left unaddressed, would call into question God's justice. Which we'll see exactly why in a bit. He manifests His righteousness. So onto the scene of this problem, this grave problem of sin and condemnation and guilt, God manifests His his righteousness. And He says He does so apart from the law. And this establishes the obsolescence of the law for salvation. The law can't save. The law can't perfect. Nothing for your salvation is extracted from the law at all. You must get that. It also shows that God has manifested His righteousness. He's not just manifesting His salvation or forgiveness. He's showing that He is righteous apart from the law. So don't look to obedience to the commandment or the provisions made by the commandment to deal with sins, to fix this mess. His righteousness is shown in another way. He does not say, but now God has chosen to bring salvation apart from the law. Rather, He says, He has manifested His righteousness apart from the law. He's not even saying yet that God has made it possible for us to be righteous apart from the law. That is true, and that's an implication of what he's going to say. But Paul here is saying something much more fundamental. Rather, the righteousness of God has been shown, not shared. He's going to tell us how that happens here in a second. But first, God's righteousness is shown. This is presented in the text as the solution to human sin. And condemnation. And what Paul is saying is that the problem is ultimately an issue of God's righteousness. What is at play then in salvation, in your salvation, and the solution to the problem of sin, condemnation, and guilt is God's own reputation. His reputation is on the line. We could reword this verse, verse 21, and say, say it in this way to get a full sense of, of the, the surprising nature of what Paul's saying. But now it has been shown that God is in fact righteous. And though the law and the prophets clearly indicated that this is how it would happen, it is not the way established by the law. So, understand what, be, what is being said and claimed. The problem is not primarily that we are in such a bad state. 
But somehow, the situation of sin and condemnation and guilt call into question God's righteousness. The stakes are even higher than the destiny of human souls. That's what's being said. And so God shows His righteousness. That's the solution to the problem. How does He do that? What is the means, or what are the means, of God showing His righteousness? This is verse 22 through 25, the first part. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, it's important for us to remember the context or it will be easy to gloss over this and say, yeah, 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 I've heard all that before. So this whole process, this is what Paul is claiming. This, this idea of us sinning, falling short of the glory of God, missing the mark, God bringing in the possibility of justification for the sinner to be received as a gift through faith in Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, all of that, of course, saves the sinner. That's implied in the word, and are justified. But the way the paragraph in the sentence is structured, that's not actually the main point. The main point is that this whole offer of salvation and justification establishes God's righteousness. So God's righteousness is manifested, shown, or proven by granting righteousness to those who trust in Jesus. This is getting very close to the answer of our uncommon question. Why is it faith? Why is it on the basis of faith that God justifies? This is also just such a glorious truth that adds such weight and significance to your salvation. In fact, the whole letter of Romans, the whole letter that we know as as Romans, uh, Paul is seeking to defend God's reputation. There are many, many different ways that the hypothetical opponent of Paul calls calls into question God's righteousness. We saw a few of them as we read through chapter 3. This is not just a treatise on the gospel then, all of Romans. That's how, that's how people summarize it. It's just the greatest treatise of the gospel ever written. It's not just that. Rather, Paul is seeking to show how salvation in Christ is both f- the fulfillment of and the proof of, and in some sense, the final establishment of God's righteousness. His very own righteousness in the world. So, how does God prove His own righteousness? How does He establish His own justice? By justifying the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how all this works together. This is great news. We're still not prepared to answer the question of why, but just bask in the goodness of that news. While it is not about you, your salvation is not about you, He has chosen that to save you is how He will prove that He is just. 
What does that mean? What does it mean then to have faith in Jesus? We will see this more clearly when we get to the second half of verse 25 and 26. But the concept of faith is not just believing that Jesus existed. You believe in Jesus, right? We, we, we have such a truncated, nutshell vision of what that means. It is not just believing that He died on the cross. It is not just believing that He was, in fact, the Son of God. The demons knew all of those things. And more. It's not even just loving Him or the idea of Him. It is not saying a prayer. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is not conforming to His moral expectations. It is all of that. But not just any or all of those things together. Faith in the Lord Jesus is trust in Him. Struggled to find an analogy to really show what this is about and how this is different than how many people in the evangelical sphere talk about believing in Jesus. When I was much younger, uh, my family and I, we, we went to the West Coast and one of my favorite stops along the way was the Golden Gate Bridge. And I know it's in California, but just hear me out with this analogy, okay? The beautiful bridge. And I, as a young boy, I was fascinated with engineering and bridges. And there were many, many things that I knew about the Golden Gate Bridge how it was made, when it was made, the materials used, what they had to do to pour the piers down in the bay there, and how a suspension bridge was different than all these other things. There's so many things that I knew. But then you arrive there and you walk across it. You're putting your trust in the fact that all of this engineering, all of this structure, all of the building, and the fact that it's a very old bridge now, will actually hold you up as you drive or walk across it. You can know a lot of things about the Lord Jesus. You can believe the truth about Him. But that doesn't mean that you trust Him. This is what believing in the Lord Jesus, having faith in Him, having trust in Him, is, in the analogy, walking across that bridge that all of this knowledge comes together with a holistic trust. I'm putting my life into your hands. You're trusting that the bridge will help you get from point A to point B without giving way under you and letting you fall. In the case of faith that justifies, what are we trusting that Jesus will do, right? We're not walking across Jesus. What are we trusting that He will do? Well, that He will keep us safe through death. This is, this is the moment when I believe I became a Christian. I was very young and didn't understand all of the ins and outs of doctrine, but I knew I had a death problem. And Jesus was the only one who claimed to be able to help me with that. And so you trust Him to help you with your death problem. You have a judgment day problem. Not only a death problem, but death will usher you into judgment day where you will stand to answer for everything. And trusting in Jesus is trusting that He will see you safely through that problem. 
And not only that, but that He will make good on His promises of eternal life. He will do it. He will keep His promises. In my case, not just generally that Jesus will be faithful. This is what trust means. It is grasping hold of Jesus that He will do what He says He will do for you. So the question still stands. So We have a lot more of the pieces in place to answer it. Why does God justify people who trust in Jesus this way? It seems like a really, really uneven trade. Right? Because we have all this sin and all of this guilt and all of this condemnation to our account. And just if you trust in Jesus, if you grasp hold of Him to fulfill His promises and His offer to you, then you get God's very own righteousness. That seems an uneven trade. Unless you look, look under the hood and really figure out why this thing really works. It can feel, if you're not answering these questions, like a legal trick or a loophole that God developed so He could save sinners. And then we would be back to square one. We would have no ground of our confidence. We would not be zealous about the Gospel. We wouldn't be proud of it. You should be proud of the Gospel and eager to share it. I hope I've done enough work to show you just how counterintuitive this is. God does not sidestep or mitigate His righteousness by rendering the verdict justified in your case, in the case of those who trust in Jesus. Rather, hear this. Rendering the verdict justified or just in the case of those who trust in Jesus proves that God is righteous. in a more profound way than He would do so through judgment. So this underscores the needs of asking the question, why faith? Why would it not work for anything else? How does mere faith, this this grasping hold of the Lord Jesus and trusting that He will do what He has promised, why does that merit such a grand response and blessing from the Lord? Before we get to the answer, we need to bring in one more piece to the puzzle, and that is the the first half of verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Actually, the, the, the sentence, the passage, would read just fine if you left this section out. But let's, let's try it. And are justified, verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance and and He would just go on. So why why put this in there? Through Though propitiation and wrath and forgiveness of sins and the cross and the atonement are all implied and alluded here, none of it's really explained in this text or in this chapter. So Paul's point here is not to explain propitiation. Rather, he states it here to allude to how all this really works. This is the ground. How is it that God can, through His act of justifying those who trust in Jesus, establish His righteousness? Because propitiation happened. 
this word connects this theology of justification and God establishing His righteousness to a brutal Roman execution on a small hill outside the city walls of Jerusalem around 30 or 33 A.D. This word is a very precious word, propitiation. I preached a whole sermon on it when we came across it in Hebrews. The Greek word is actually borrowed from the Greek culture to explain what is happening on the cross. The verb implies at least four things. Number one, the deity who has wrath against someone. Number two, the putting forward of the offering. Someone who puts forward an offering. Number three, the one with whom the deity has wrath. And number four, the thing put forward as a sacrifice to remove or assuage the wrath of the deity. All of that is implied in this one word. So this idea, the true form of it, is seen in what the Father did. The deity, in this case, is the one and only true God, the Father. The ones against whom the one and only true God has wrath is us, you, And the one that is put forward is the Lord Jesus, God's only begotten Son. But notice the difference. In Greek culture, uh, a priest, or maybe the one that the deity was assumed to be mad at, would bring the offering to the deity to appease this God. And even in some Roman Catholic circles, you or another person can come and bring something to God to kind of Uh, Calm him down if he's upset at you. And maybe you think of God that way. That maybe through obedience or getting your act together that that you can uh, incline his affections more towards you and maybe uh, turn some heavenly frown away from you. But in the only true act of propitiation that ever really happened, God puts forward the sacrifice Himself. He made provision to take His wrath off the table between you and Him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what the death of Jesus has to do with your sin. You have never met Him. You have never seen Him. But even if you do not believe in Him, there is a more close and binding connection between you and Jesus than between you and any other person, even a spouse. Because in His act of laying down His life according to the Father's will, He has everything to do with you and everything to do with your sin. We didn't ask for this. And you might not want the burden of such a gift for you to be bought and paid for by the death of another person. But God has slaughtered His Son in your place for your sins to deal with His wrath that He rightly had against you because Romans 3, 1-20 accurately describes every single one of you. Every single one of us. This is why it's so important to be thinking in these terms of wrath and, and sacrifice put forward to absorb the wrath than, than just some trite nutshell version of it. Oh yeah, He died on the cross and rose again. 
Right, that's true. I get it. But what was he doing there? Why did God put him forward? It wasn't just that the world rejected him. The Father rejected him to deal with his wrath against us. How can one person, how can one death absorb all the wrath of God against so many? Thought about this for a while. Obviously, Jesus is an infinite being or, or an eternal being. So his suffering, in a sense, counts more than ours. and He's the perfect substitute. But, but I want you to consider this. Consider or remember the deepest sorrow you have ever known. And how much physical pain would you rather endure than that sorrow? And his sorrow on the tree was measureless because of what he lost in his fellowship with the Father. It wasn't just the nails. It wasn't just the beatings. It wasn't just the crown of thorns or the plucking of his hair out of his beard. It was that he was rejected by the Father. No one has ever been so alone and so filled with sorrow. I didn't ask for this, but it doesn't matter. He has done it. And Him doing it for you comes with many obligations. You must accept this gift. To believe in Him, to receive this gift, is not just an offer. It is not just the best news ever. It is a command from the Father. In His kindness and love, He has paid a price that we, even we who are fathers, can just barely, barely begin to understand. And the gravity of that cost, that loss, demands that you take this gift. That you receive this gift by faith. Turning it down would be the most insulting, wicked, and catastrophic choice you would ever make. Why did He do this? I didn't ask for this. And now you're telling me that if I don't trust in this slaughtered One, Jesus Christ, then matters will even be worse for me than they were before? Yes. And why? So, so many reasons why. But just considered that had He not made a way in the death of His Son, then there'd be no hope at all. No one would be saved. But He has done it in part because He is a compassionate and merciful God and He knows what awaits you if you die in your sins. But also, let's not bury the lead. He has done all this because He desires to manifest or show or prove that He is righteous. So here's the reason for it. Verses 25, the second half, through verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
I would wager a good sum that if someone came up to you and asked, why did God send his son as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sins? That a great number of us would not answer this way, even if we were given five or ten options to answer. So many answers are right, of course. But the question that we started with at the beginning, why is it faith? It will show why this word that I'm giving, vindication, has to be at least part of the answer. So here's, here's a way to begin getting closer to the answer. Why did God send His Son as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins to be received by faith? And not in some other way. Answer, to show God's righteousness. To vindicate Him as being Righteous. I'm using big words. I understand that. So vindication. This is important. So even those of you who are very, very young in this room can understand this. Have you ever told a friend or maybe even your parents that you shouldn't ever do that, but I I told you so? You warned someone. You told them that something was the case. You You had a position, a thought, and you were arguing it or contending for it, and the other person didn't believe you. And then the event happened or they went and looked it up on Google or whatever and then you have the feeling, the desire, the almost irresistible desire to say, I told you so. Or see, that is a microcosm, a tiny picture of what vindication is. You are being vindicated in that moment when it turns out that you are actually right. That is what God is doing in putting forward Jesus As a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, he is vindicating himself. He's essentially saying, not to put it too simplistically, I told you so. Or I was right. It carries the sense of clearing or glorifying his name when his righteousness is called into question by our own actions, by his own actions. In a way, he raises the question himself by acting in certain ways. We'll see that in a bit. The first thing Paul says then, after explaining all of these things to his readers, this was to show God's righteousness. Again, he's not getting to the point of sharing it yet. It's already been alluded to in justifying the sinner. But this is to show God's righteousness. Paul makes it clear that the whole plan of salvation and the sacrifice of His Son and offering justification to those who have faith in Jesus is ultimately about God's reputation, His glory. So how was His reputation on the line? How was His glory at risk of being impugned? The text gives us one answer. In His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. What this means is essentially this. When Adam and Eve first sinned, the pure or right or holy response would be to obliterate all the universe, or at least Adam and Eve. When any of us ever sins, the right or pure or holy response, at least in a simplistic way, is to obliterate or condemn us to hell forever and immediately. God showing patience and mercy and holding off His wrath actually calls into question of whether or not He's just. We read the accounts of the Old Testament when Moses descends from the mountain after receiving the law and we 
hear of God's burning anger against the children of Israel and we, we, we think about fairness and all these concepts come up, but the right thing in a pure, simplistic way for God to do would be exactly what He said He was going to do. To destroy all of them and start over. So Him showing this mercy, Him showing this patience, calls into question His righteousness. All onlookers, maybe even the, the heavenly courts, but even the dictates of His own holiness, call into question what He's doing with His patience. So, in offering Jesus, as a means to absorb His wrath, He is showing that He was not wrong to be patient. That He was not wrong to show mercy. That He was not wrong to offer salvation to those who would have faith. That He was, in fact, more righteous than we could imagine. He also vindicates the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's justice is upheld and shown. The big takeaway from this display of all the work of God, like if you, if you were to go to a movie and just watch it all unfold, you would come out of it saying, wow, God is just. And someone would maybe ask you that and seen the movie yet. Really? How was that shown to you? How, how, how did this portrayal show it to you? Well, in the way that He justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's what really proved to me as I saw all this unfolding that God is in fact just. This is a unique feature of Christianity and part of why you should be really, really proud of the Gospel. No other religion has this. For God to simultaneously be just and be able to show mercy and justify sinners, Allah can choose to show justice or mercy. He can't show both at the same time. Yet in your case, because of what Jesus did on Golgotha, He can be even more just in your case through forgiving you and showing mercy. His justice is magnified, shown to be a bigger deal in Him atoning for your sins in the offering of His Son in your place. So now we're finally ready to answer the question that we started out with. It's, it's in this phrase, He is just and the justifier. The reason why God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus and why it would not work with any other virtue, and why it absolutely must work in the case of those who have faith, is that when a person trusts in the Lord, specifically to deal with our death problem, to deal with our guilt problem, and to keep His promises, it causes His reputation to be on the line. When a person trusts in the Lord, you tether the outcome of your life to His reputation, to His glory. This is why it is more just for God to save a sinner to the uttermost when that sinner grasps hold of the promises of the Lord Jesus than for God to enact judgment on them. Because God's glory, Him being glorified, is the most just thing. And so when you trust in the Lord, when you say, I trust that you'll be able to do all these things for me. You will see me safely through death. You will see me safely through judgment day. Then God's name, His glory, is at issue in your case. This is why we read from the Psalms. He trusts in God. 
Let him deliver him, for surely God delights in him. That taunt on the cross is so revelatory when you understand what is actually happening. The onlookers are questioning if you made the right decision by placing your faith in Jesus. And if God is going to make good on His promises. This is why faith grasps hold of God in a way that nothing else does. Because if He fails, That harms his reputation. That robs him of glory. He is very, very interested in gaining glory for his name. And when you, this is, this is why faith is also called calling on the name of the Lord. He becomes our boast that, that we are then tethering our outcome, our eternal destiny, to his reputation. So, the result, very quickly, verses 26. Uh, 27 through 31. It is not those who strive and strive and strive to please the Lord through keeping the law that please God, but rather the one who trusts in God. The righteousness that the law aims for, the end of the law, the end goal of the giving of the law is fulfilled not by strict conformity to the law, but rather by those who have faith in Jesus. That's what I think he means when he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. The emphasis should be on the we. That when a person trusts in the Lord, the very righteousness that, that was aimed at by the law of Moses that was never attainable because of the weakness of the flesh is now accomplished and God's righteousness is shown and people are given His righteousness through faith. It's not because the law was wrong, but a perfection was never attainable through the law. And if it were attainable through the law, then the person who gets credit for our destiny would be our effort and not God's ability to make good on His promises. And it was obviously weakened by the flesh. It's as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law, meaning the end goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, just a few things to say about the Gospel as the foundation of life together. I think if we really understood this and God's commitment to save sinners who trust in Jesus, we'd be walking around with a lot more joy. Not necessarily the absence of sorrow, but an outlook of holy positivity. The very name and reputation of God is at stake in your perseverance to the end. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Not because you're holding fast to Him, but because He desires glory in your case. He will do it because He has tethered His justice and His righteousness to keeping those promises to you. And there are a lot of discouraging things in this life but all of them find their resolve in this message. Meaning the message of God justifying Himself through offering salvation to those who would trust in the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul says, encourage one another with these words. You might not be able to connect all the dots to how the Gospel itself addresses your particular sorrow or suffering, but we know that these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. 
Secondly, I think we would prioritize unity. Hope you understand the flavor of unity has been one of the priorities of our ministry here for these four years. I'm worried about unity for our church. The Romans had a style of concrete where as the waves battered against it, it would cause tiny cracks and fissures, but it had a particular chemical compound where as that water seeped into the cracks, a chemical reaction would take place and would actually strengthen the concrete. The gospel can have that same effect. As fissures or division creep in, and they inevitably will, that the gospel will then seep into those cracks and cause it to be stronger than it was before. This shared family story of the gospel is what can bring that unity. God's work in Christ should be a big enough deal in your life if you're able to overlook so many things and you then get to emulate God's kindness and forgiving posture. Third, this would also affect our evangelism. Understanding what God is up to and what real trust in the Lord Jesus is. We should just be done with piddly versions of evangelism. When we invite people to believe in the Lord Jesus, it needs to have this rich and full summons. We are not trying to get them to turn over a new leaf or just believe in God or reject evolution. Obviously. But we want them to trust in the Lord Jesus to take the mooring lines of their soul and lash them to the solid rock of Christ. That's what saves. That's what justifies. Nothing else. So you need to explain who He is and why He is worth such trust to these people who need to believe in Him to receive the wrath-absorbing effect of His sacrifice in their case. To be done with cheap evangelism. Call on the name of the Lord. That's our summons to the world. Number four, it would also inform the way that we exhort one another. The one who trusts in Jesus is justified. Period. You can't add to your justification through right living. So we should stop exhorting that way. However, we need to exhort one another to live in line with our claim to trust Him. Do you trust Him? Walk out on that bridge. If you trust that He's able to see you through the coming peril of death and judgment day, then maybe trust Him in His wisdom about how to lead your family, about how to spend your time, about how not to spend your time, how to use your finances, Live consistent with your claim to trust Him. That is the summons of exhortation within the church. It's not prove that you are saved. It's not add to your salvation. It's let's live in light of the fact of what He's done for us. Living contrary to His commands weakens faith and lessens your reward and makes your journey to glory filled with so many unnecessary pains. Number five, it would give us perspective. The gospel is really what's going on in the world. You may think that the most recent political upheaval or war 
or economic factors are the biggest thing going on. It's never been. Never has been. It's been the Gospel. From before all time, the Lamb was slain. This is what is going on in the world. And your life can be lived in line with it. What really matters? Seeking the kingdom and going out and getting the sheep that are part of His fold that need to be brought in. And lastly, if you'll spare me a few more minutes, it would increase our assurance. Very often, it is the case that believers, people who are genuinely believers, struggle with assurance of salvation. Is this really true in my case? When I struggle with this question, it often comes around to the question, this seems too good to be true. That's why I was talking about this. seems like a really unfair trade, an unfair exchange. But for various reasons, a Christian may question, is this really true? Am I really genuine? Am I really in the faith? And often the question is posed, and, and teachers, preachers try to help people understand your ground of assurance with a question like this. So if you, you die, you uh, show up to heaven, and maybe it's St. Peter there or an angel or somebody asking, well, well, why should we let you in? And, and your answer to that can tell a lot about what your theology is and if your assurance is grounded in the right thing or not. I've heard that question asked and answers given many different times and many of them are helpful, but I want you to understand this. Because what's ultimately at stake in your salvation, being God's reputation, not just your destiny, not just your eternal life, but God's own glory and His reputation and the establishment of His justice, then you would understand that when you arrive, that question will not be asked. If anyone dares to pose that question to you, a justified sinner who trusts in the Lord Jesus, then they are on the side of the accuser. This is why when people say, I'm just playing devil's advocate, that's a really, really bad job. Because He is the one who accuses the brethren day after day, night after night, essentially saying in your case, you shouldn't let Him in. You shouldn't let her in. Have you seen His life? Have you read Romans 3 and know that this is true about Him or her? But God's reputation is on the line in whether or not you gain entrance. And so if anyone be it Satan himself asks you, why should they let you in? Stand back. Because they are at odds with God. You just keep walking right in. Because your name is written there. He is so committed to His glory that He will save you to the uttermost. If you really understand what is going on, in justification by faith, you'll know that that could never be asked and your, your eternal security can never be in question. So, let's be gospel people, first and foremost. Let it inform the nature of our community. Let it be the family story that unites us and gives us zeal for this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you 
It, it seems such a trivial word to say thank you. That you would send your son. That he would drink the cup of your wrath to the dregs. And all for establishing your righteousness in the case of our salvation. Grant us firm assurance that you will do it. You will do what you say you will do. Grant us to grow in the strength of our faith. In Jesus' name.